We're going to be back in the Gospel of John, surprise, surprise, right? Today, uh, chapter 19, we're going to be in verses 20, 28 through 37. This is week 78 of the Gospel of John. And you may ask, why are we spending so much time in the Gospel of John? Well, a few answers there. One is being saved necessitates that we are disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus. And how better to learn about how to follow Jesus than to walk through his life, his ministry, and now his death, and soon to be his resurrection. And so if we're going to understand how to live the Christian life, we need to learn from the one who we follow, Jesus Christ. And so today, again, we're looking back at Jesus' crucifixion. So let's read a couple of the verses here at the beginning, and we'll pray and we'll look at this passage. Verse 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that... We know you, that we have our salvation, God, that you've called us, you've given us your Holy Spirit, and God, you've put us in this world, not alone, but you left us with the Holy Spirit to give us power to live in a way that displays you accurately, not perfectly, but accurately and truly. And God, I pray that today as we walk through the really horrifying, from a human standpoint, story of the crucifixion, and we see what you went through on our behalf, God. May it encourage us, spur us on to just run harder, seek harder after you, God. And pray for anyone here who has never put their faith and trust in you, that today might be their day of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. So in today's passage, in today's text, John is describing the very last moments of Jesus' life. In, in verse 28, he starts out, he says, after this, if you were here last week, this would have been the very last thing that happened was Jesus on the cross, typical of Jesus, thinking about others. He sees his mother, and he makes sure that his mother is taken care of by looking at John and saying, John, this is now your mother. Take care of her. Now, we know that Jesus had brothers, but at this point in his ministry, Jesus' brothers were not followers of Jesus. I mean, they were not... Uh, in Christ, they did not come to know, believe Christ until after the resurrection. So more than likely, that's why he gave John the responsibility of his mother. And how fitting was it that it, that fell on Mother's Day last week? And so here we have John, who is an eyewitness. He's standing there at the cross, and he's writing everything down that he sees, that he hears, that happens. He is making notes of it. He's writing it to us so that we have this. And not only that was John recording this, but we know from looking the last week and previous week that there's so much prophecy that has been fulfilled throughout this book. We see so many things that have happened that are referencing Old Testament, particularly Isaiah, when Isaiah talked about the suffering Messiah, one who would come, who would suffer in Isaiah 53 verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, 
and with his wounds we are healed. And so the cross is the center of it all. It's the apex of history. That in Jesus' resurrection, this is why God came in the flesh. He came to pay for us. And so the cross, we have cross displayed. Some of you have crosses around your neck. We have crosses in our homes. We have crosses everywhere. Crosses is kind of like our logo for our faith, right? It it's displays what Jesus accomplished for us. But we need to remember, and we really talked about this in great detail last week, that the cross during the time of Christ, the Romans used this for just the worst execution humanly possible. And there are accounts where the Romans would crucify up to 6,000 people at once and put them along the road where people would travel just to be a warning to people, don't mess with Rome, don't cross us. Here's what happens when you go against Roman authority. And so it was serious business. Pilate did not believe Jesus was worthy of crucifixion. Roman citizens, it was such a powerful, uh, horrible death that Roman citizens weren't even allowed to be crucified. So you can understand the horror of it. In fact, even though we have crosses everywhere, it wasn't until the fourth century that art became to display, Christian art began to display crosses because it was that long before Rome outlawed crucifixion because uh, they kept it going, so the Christians did not identify with the pain and the horror of it necessarily until after it ceased being a form of execution. I've said this before, it'd be similar to you, instead of wearing a cross around your neck, wearing an electric chair around your neck. I mean, that, it, it's silly to think about because it was a form of execution until now after the fact. So execution by crucifixion was a slow and painful death, but one thing we've noticed and said again and again, which is so important, Jesus was not a victim of the Roman government, the Jewish leadership, he freely gave his life for us. It was God's redemption plan. And so verse 28 again, he said, knowing that all was now finished. So Jesus, his mission, what he came to accomplish, what he came to do was about finished at this point. And in this context, the work of Jesus not only completes the work of God, but it also Jesus shows a complete scripture, which is very important because scripture is how we know about God, how we know about Jesus. So you can't separate scripture out from Jesus and the, and the Bible. We don't worship the Bible, but the Bible is how we know anything about Jesus, anything about God, how to follow him, his work of redemption, his plan of redemption. And so John, as we've said, recorded this. He was an eyewitness to it. And so we see Jesus allude to, even as he's on the cross, he says, I thirst, verse 28, to fulfill the scriptures. So Jesus was on the cross for approximately, one would guess, about six hours. And so his loss of blood, all the abuse and the whipping that he went through, the exposure he had to the elements, you can imagine how thirsty he would be. I mean, it would be a raging thirst at this point. But we see from the text, this wasn't the primary reason that Jesus asked for a drink. In the crucifixion account alone, there are around 20 references to Old Testament, things that were written hundreds and thousands of years before, references surrounding the death of Jesus in detail. So Jesus' request to have his thirst quench was an answer to, it was a fulfillment of the prophecy from Psalm 69, 21, where David wrote, they gave me vinegar for my thirst, writing prophetically, they gave me vinegar for my thirst. So in order for 
this part of the Messianic Psalm to be fulfilled, it was necessary for Jesus to receive a sip of vinegar for his thirst. Earlier, you may remember in the account from some of the other Gospels, Jesus had turned down uh, a request for some painkiller that he could have taken earlier on before he was on the cross. But at this point, he says, I thirst, and he does that so that the scriptures in detail, every facet of his death, fulfilling prophecy. And again, by highlighting how Old Testament scriptures were fulfilled in, G- in Jesus' crucifixion, John is showing us that everything was happening here. Everything was transparent according to God's plan. So the soldiers, uh, verse 29 says, they got a, a jar full of sour wine it was standing there, so they put, it, put a, a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. Now, when I read this earlier in my life, I thought, well, you know, here we go. This shows you that the Roman soldiers were human, right? They had some compassion, right? Jesus was thirsty. He was crying out for thirst, so they helped him out. They felt compassion toward him and relieved his thirst. Well, most commentators say that's not the case at all, all right? In fact, they left drink there at the cross to actually extend people's life on the cross. Remember, crucifixion, it was slow and painful for a purpose to stop anyone else from rebelling against Rome. So the longer that the crucified individual hung there, the better for the Roman government. And then also the fact that this was during Passover. So we know that literally hundreds of thousands of pilgrims were in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And so giving him something to quench his thirst would actually prolong his life and allow him to continue on. And, and get this picture also. Scholars tell us that unlike what we show oftentimes, which is the cross being high and lifted up and Jesus being way up above everyone else, that crosses during Roman executions were just slightly above eye level. And so think about that as you think about last week's text where his mother was there watching this. I mean, it wasn't like she was looking up at him. She was looking right into his eyes. And the people around could look into the eyes. And those Roman soldiers could spit and mock him and, and, and make fun of him right to his face. It was a horrible, horrible way to be put to death. And this hyssop branch, we don't have time to go into it, but this hyssop branch had so much symbolism regarding to the Passover. And so this is an amazing picture, but also in reference, I put this in my notes before Pastor Tim Keller passed away on Friday. I was referencing Tim Keller. He's just somebody I really admire and look up to, admired and, and read a lot of from him. And he talked about how that this idea of Jesus saying, I'm thirsty, was actually just referencing also a metaphor that has existed throughout the book of John. We've seen it several times. Remember the woman at the well in chapter 4 when, she, when Jesus asked her for something to drink, and then he offered her living water, and then what seemed to be changing the subject, he said, go get your husband. And she's like, I don't have a husband. He's like, you're right, you got five husbands, and the one you're living with now isn't your husband at all. And he begins to talk to her about spiritual thirst. And it's a metaphor throughout, not just John, but throughout the Bible, that thirst is a spiritual metaphor for spiritual emptiness, just being empty spiritually. And we think about John 7 when Jesus stood up and he said, if anyone thirsts, what's he say? Come to me and drink, right? So if you're thirsty, if you're in touch, everybody's 
thirsty. Everyone has a spiritual thirst, just not everyone's in touch with that spiritual thirst because we're putting a lot of other stuff in there or preoccupying our minds with lots of other things so we don't think about the spiritual thirst that exists because we know that God put within us eternity. He put within us just this knowledge, Romans 1, of there's a God who exists. And we know that intrinsically, but we can put it out of our minds. And so Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, if you know you're thirsty for more, come to me and drink, chapter 7. And so throughout the Bible, thirst pictures spiritual longing, spiritual need. And in Psalm 42, the psalmist writes, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. So thirsting, this verse and others show us, it's about so much more than just finding a religion or attending a church or going through the motions. It's literally about God satisfying us. It's the Westminster Catechism, right? It's, it's, I want to glorify God and enjoy Him. Somebody referenced that in one of the graduation services this weekend. What a, what a powerful thing that, that we can not only know God and glorify God, but we can enjoy God. And so that's what the spiritual thirst is about. So religion looks to the outside. It says, I want to make a good showing. I want to impress people. I want to make people think I'm doing the stuff. I'm, I'm trying to do enough to make God happy with me. But spiritual thirst is about quenching the deep desires of your heart. It's about Jesus meeting and satisfying the deep spiritual needs that we have. And so this can seem foreign to so many people because, again, you just don't think through it and think about it. I was having lunch with a guy on Tuesday. It was, it was actually Reed, and we were, we were sitting here, and we were talking about just um, life, and we were talking about uh, God's existence. And we began to talk about how that like faith and if you don't believe in God, that's faith is harder than believing in a God. Believing that these random mutations and these processes just happened to the point where just all of this stuff just came into being perfectly, exactly the way that it should have happened. And, and that just seems incredible, and it takes a great deal of faith to believe in that. And so we have, we have to force ourselves to truly think about, okay, there's more past this life. Right? There's more. And being a person who does all that funerals and at the bedside and even seeing my own dad suffer, you know there's more to life. And so you think through it and you think, wow, I need to really consider the truth of this, that Jesus died. What did he die for? He died for a reason. He died for a purpose. But sometimes we just can't get past just what's in front of us, that we're so busy with life. One of my favorite titles of a book was written for high schoolers, and it's called if God loves me, why can't I get my locker open? And I think that really sums up the fact that how we're so busy with the mundane stuff. And I think a lot of this is the ploy of, of the Satan to keep us busy with stuff that really has no eternal value, keeping us hopping from place to place, busy, so busy that we have no time to really, truly reflect on what's important and what matters. In fact, I, I was reading one pastor said that after a sermon, he was standing by the door, and an older gentleman walked by, and he said, Hey, Pastor, good sermon. Now back to the real world. And I think that's what a lot of people kind of think. They think that, all right, this is good in theory, and it's good to know that Jesus died, and I'm, I'm fine with the cross, you know, and I, I'm fine with some religion. But it really doesn't impact our hearts. And we, we're not forced to consider the realities, because all we're thinking about is that locker being stuck, right? And so we've got to get past that and consider what really truly matters. 
And Hebrews eleven six says this. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So we have to have faith because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And he goes on to say, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. All right? We must believe that God exists. But more than that, then, and we, he, we know he rewards those who seek after him. So when Jesus speaks of thirst and he speaks of on the cross needing a drink and he has this picture that he has of spiritual thirst, yes, he's, he's truly thirsty. And, and not to over-allegorize it, he's, he's actually truly thirsty. We can imagine what he's gone through, but symbolizing this representative thirst for all humanity and that the cross is the source of living water. The cross is the source of living water. And, and so think about it. Just picture your life as a bucket for a second, all right? Picture your life as a bucket. What are you dipping your bucket into to bring satisfaction and joy in your, to your life? What are you trying to do to fulfill yourself? I mean, sometimes it's family. Sometimes it's activities. Sometimes it's kids and sports. Many, many things that we can begin to dip our bucket into thinking this will provide life. It's that vacation I'm going to take or that vacation in three years I'm going to take. And we have hope in these things, but we know that it's not steady hope and we know that it won't last. It won't last because why? There's a God who exists and he rewards those who believe that he exists and he, they seek, we seek after him. So it's not enough to give God, hey, good sermon, pastor, and then walk out back to the real world. But if God exists and he rewards those who diligently and earnestly seek after him, then there's more to this life than just believing intellectually there's a God. Jeremiah said it this way in the Old Testament. He said, for my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. So get the picture, right? They've not only abandoned the source of living water. Why? Why do they abandon the source of living water? The tyranny of the urgent. The things in front of us are typically, it may not be I'm walking away from God because I'm an atheist, I don't believe anymore. Most of the time it's just like, I don't think about it. I'm too busy. Like I don't have time to ponder these things. I don't have time to live my life the way God called me because I'm just thinking about clocking in at eight o'clock Monday and doing another week, right? And so we get preoccupied and so we leave God, and then we begin to run through these other things trying to fulfill ourselves. And they never, ever, ever work out because they're cracked and they don't hold water. And so Jesus, as he's on the cross, he says, I thirst. He's truly thirsty. And we can't help but also to, to think that he may be asking for a drink for one last reason, which is to cry out what he cries out in verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, so after he took the drink, which was to prolong his life. It gave him the energy to raise himself up on that cross, to be able to take one last deep, full breath, and then to cry out in victory, it is finished. It is finished. This is not a cry of defeat. It's a cry of victory. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. Spirit. Although he was in agonizing pain, he cried out for a purpose. His last words were there for a purpose. The work is done. And the way that Jesus, John describes Jesus' death shows that even as he hung there on the cross, that he was totally in control of what was taking place. Look, it says he bowed his head. He's not fighting to stay alive. He's not saying as, doing as we would be doing, like, let me hang on here. I don't want to die. He takes one last breath. He says, it is finished. And he hangs, bows his head almost in honor to his father, 
and he hangs and he gives up the spirit, indicating that he chose the moment of his death. He chose the moment of his death. And this entire scene depicts the voluntary death that Jesus predicted. He said back in chapter 10, verse 18, nobody takes my life from me. I sacrifice it willingly, voluntarily. So he says, it is finished. Literally, it is finished, paid in full, right? Paid in full. That's just three little words in English, three very simple words. It's one word in the Greek, but it shows that our justification before God is satisfied. There is no more need to sacrifice, to work, to earn, to keep. Jesus said, it's finished. Little sentence, it is finished. But the significance of this one little sentence has eternal consequences for billions of people. The cross is about so much more than a man who endured pain and suffering. It's so much more than about a man who defeated Satan. It's so much more about having victory over death. Although those things may be true, it's so much more. It's about the fact that Jesus took our place on that cross. That's why he said it is finished. The work was done. The, the, the need to satisfy God's wrath because God's wrath was against us. His wrath was upon us, but Jesus took it on in our place. He, in Corinthians, it says he willingly became our sin. He took our sin. He became our sin. The great exchange, Jesus takes our sin and then he gives us his righteousness. And so when God looks at us, if our faith is in Jesus, he doesn't see the sin. He sees Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ. What an amazing truth, one that we talked about the danger of familiarity last week, how that we can hear this stuff over and over again, but the gospel implications are incredible for every area of life. The fact that it's complete, that the things we do and the things we don't do don't earn favor with God. It's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's why we say again and again here at Grace, it's all about Jesus because it truly is all about Jesus. And he took the hellish punishment that we deserved. He willingly endured the wrath of God in order that we might have salvation because of love for us. And so with that cry of victory, Jesus breathed his last breath. Verse 31, since it was the day of preparation... And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So we have this request by the Jewish leaders that really revealed uh, like their true spiritual blindness, right? Their, their true hearts. Here they are. They're murdering Jesus, that they're killing an innocent man, and here they go to the Romans and ask the Romans to do their dirty work. Will you, will you break this guy's leg? Because we got Sabbath, we got Passover, we, we got, this is a big deal for us, and it's against our law for to have him hanging there on the Sabbath day. So will you take care of this for us? And Pilate, for some reason, he agrees to do that. But it's interesting, they're so concerned about fulfilling their ceremonial laws that they miss the big things, Right? Look at the hypocrisy. We've seen it throughout this gospel, the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. But we must, at the same time, look at ourselves as well. I mean, all these things are a reflection because these guys are human and we're human beings. 
And we could easily, what, strain at a gnat and swallow a camel, as Jesus said, that we can get so hung up on things that we begin to fight battles that aren't worth fighting. We begin to take issue with things that aren't worthy of taking issue while ignoring bigger and more important things that we should be concerned about. And here the, the Jewish leadership, they're so concerned about their laws that they are in cohorts with the Romans to kill Jesus, kill an innocent man. So the soldiers came, verse 32, and broke the legs of the first, and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. So the Roman soldiers would carry this lance, this about three and a half foot long thing, and they just used it to hit into Jesus' side, puncture Jesus' side, and his heart sacked, so this clear fluid along with the blood began to flow out. And it, it clearly indicated John was an eyewitness. Jesus was dead, right? Jesus was dead. John wants us to know that. Why does John want us to know that? For a couple of reasons. In the early church, this heresy arose that Jesus was totally divine. He was totally God, but he was not human. He only pretended to be human. So John wants his readers to know that such talk was a complete and utter lie. As sure as Jesus was fully God, he was fully human, so he bled and he died. And John says in the next verse, in verse 35, that he was a witness. Again, he wants us to know the truth. Look at verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. This is John referring to himself in the first person. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. So he's saying, I was there. I saw this happen. Jesus actually, truly, really died. He died. And so this heresy that began to develop in the early church, this, what was called Gnosticism, began to develop that Jesus wasn't truly God John said, and wasn't truly human. John says, yes, he was. I was there. And then, strangely enough, an, another thing started circulating sometime later and actually circulated well into uh, the 10th, 11th, 12th century, this idea that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, that he fainted, he was unconscious, and he was taken to the grave, and then he woke up, he was alert, and he walked out, you know, and, and, and so he really didn't die. That's what you come up with when you want to explain something that can't be explained. And what could they not explain? They could not explain the resurrection. You see, if we ended, if John ended the gospel here and there was no resurrection, which we'll look at the next few weeks, then Jesus was just a martyr. He was just a guy. He was just a good man who came and prophesied. But they had to come up with this crazy theory, which would be impossible, because Jesus did come out of the grave, proving he was who he said he was. And John said, I was there. I watched him die. In verse 36, again, to the slightest detail, God is fulfilling his word in the Old Testament. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. That's in fulfillment of Psalm 34, 20. And there's also great symbolism there because the Passover lamb could have no broken bones. And then verse 37, again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced, right? Fulfilling Zechariah 12, 10. So a suffering servant, the Old Testament referenced it again and again. Isaiah clearly referenced it. 
predicted hundreds of years before the Messiah. I'm glad there is the prophetic fulfillments, you know, because some people may be okay just believing because, you know, I, I believe Jesus rose again, but some people want more intellectual information. They want to know, like, show me proof of this. Show me proof that this happened. And the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies, there's no way that this could have been done by accident. And then the fact that you had an eyewitness there, John and others, eyewitnessing and recording this for our benefit. There's a reason there's four Gospels, right? Four witnesses, multiple witnesses, the disciples. And so, today the application, all of us have a spiritual debt we cannot pay. But Jesus paid our debt. Jesus did what we could never do. He took the punishment and the shame that we deserved and gave us the freedom that we just sang about. And so what do we do with that? We know and enjoy God. And we know that everything changes about our lives when Jesus is at the center. That our lives look different. They do. Things change. Not in a moment, but over time. We begin to see Jesus and delight in Jesus and follow Jesus. A few weeks ago, I had mentioned this. I went out to Texas to visit my good friend Jeff Oldham. And some of you may have met Jeff. He's been here a couple times. But 20 years ago, such when I lived in Dallas, Jeff, when I met Jeff, Jeff was a broken, broken man. He was a principal of a public freshman center, a school center, just all freshmen, a thousand freshmen, right across from our church. And a guy in our church said, hey, this guy is really hurt, and he's separated from his wife. Things are going really bad for him. And let's go and just encourage him. And I met Jeff, and Jeff had committed many, many acts of adultery on his wife. They were separated, bound for divorce. Yet through this guy, Barry Chubb, and myself, through our testimony and work and just talking with Jeff, Jeff, on it was January the 2nd, I remember the day after New Year's, we were in the weight room at Lake Highlands Freshman Center, and Jeff, six foot four, six foot five guy, fell to his knees, just broken. And he said, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. Remember that? As clear as can be. And he prayed and put his faith in Jesus. Well, things didn't instantly change, but they began to change. They did begin to change. And Jeff went into ministry, went to Belize. We supported him as a missionary, and now he's in full-time ministry as an associate pastor in Lubbock. But just, to, to, just the coolest thing about the story happened when I was in Texas for this men's retreat. After sharing with the guys on these four different sessions, I would join a different table. There was like 15 tables of guys, about eight guys around each table. And the last session, I just happened to land at the table with Jeff's 17-year-old son, who I'd never met until I went out to Texas. And I sat there with him, and, and I said, hey, guys, let's, what, how are we going to apply this? What's one takeaway we're going to take from this, this, this talk and from this conference we did? And each guy went around and shared, and I had each guy, as he shared, a different guy pray for him. Well, the only one that was left at the end, because Nathan's only 17 years old, and so, you know, sometimes 17-year-olds praying in front of guys and, you know, a little nervous, and so I wasn't going to say anything, but I just felt like, like, okay, Jeff, let me, uh, I mean, um, Nathan, let me share mine, what God really used in my life, and then I said, will you pray for me? And, you know, typical teenager, he got, like, really nervous. He's like, "Uh, thank you for this food, you know, kind of, like, lean back and really awkward. I was like, it's all right, it's all right. And I was going to let him off the hook. And he's like, no, 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 man, I got this. I'm, I want to do it. And, and he began to pray. And what he said was this. He said, John, thank you, God, for John. 
Because without John, I wouldn't be here today. How awesome was that, right? He said, he's meant so much to my dad. My dad would not have found you if John hadn't responded. And that's the prayer that he prayed. And that's the power of the gospel. That not only does the gospel affect you, it affects future generations. And so we embrace Jesus and all that he did on the cross. We don't just see the cross as a symbol or a logo. It's our life. And the resurrection is our life. And we live for his glory. And we enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the, the gruesome, agonizing story of the cross. Because we know that's what we deserved. We deserved this punishment because our sins were great. But your love was truly greater that you came on our behalf. And God, I pray that you will help us as we live out our faith, our discipleship. God, that we'll stay in your word knowing that we need it because we're prone to hypocrisy and failure. We're prone to make a mess of ourselves. We're prone to strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. We can make things such a big deal that are pointless and useless. We can dip our bucket into things again and again that we hope will bring us satisfaction and joy, but again, they keep coming up empty. And God, I pray that our thirst will be for you, and God, that you will captivate us and help us to delight in you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray.